1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Gulliver. What's up, man?
2: Not too much, Andrew. I know you like to fancy yourself, this big-time day trader just sitting on Twitter trying to be the guy who reads the markets and tells me when things are overrated and underrated and when uh, there's too much momentum going one way or the other. So I have a question for you. Okay. I've been out here, you know, just kind of grinding out the national parks and national monuments. And is it possible that America has become underrated, undervalued as an asset? Are people focusing too much (laughs) on the drama in Washington, D.C.? And look, let's not make light of some of the very serious, uh, you know, political things that are happening uh, across the country. No question about it. But I'm out here and just some immaculate places places that will just take your breath away um and i'm seeing things that are just reminding me of the beauty and the power of the american spirit like for example the carlsbad caverns are in the middle of the new mexico desert i mean you have to go hours Mm -hmm. and hours and hours to find these things right but what do they have when you get there andrew a 75 story elevator down straight into the ground so that anybody, even your grandfather, would be able to tour one of America's most uh, underrated and incredible national monuments. Not only do they have a 75-story elevator into the ground that was built in the 1930s, by the way, originally, they have a food court and they have a fully functional bathroom. I ask you, Andrew, where they do that at, only in America would we be able... (laughs) (laughs) to put this kind of thing together and this is just one of countless examples of american ingenuity of our ambition of our intelligence of our engineering might and i'm just saying you're looking you know you're you're sitting there day trading like you do has america become underrated and undervalued are you on board with me
1: you're right, first of all. I like to think that I try to keep my finger on the pulse with respect to the relative valuations of NBA players. Uh, my, my skills don't always extend to like America's place in the world, but um, I love that this is sort of a summer project for you. You know, You had to go deep into the caverns in New Mexico to rediscover your love of country. I applaud your mission and um, well don't they say like the, you
2: don't aren't the Goldman Sachs guys like aren't the best of those guys? Don't they sometimes like go out to the coal mines and speak with the miners to like determine what's the future of the industry before making their bets? I like to say that that's what I'm doing with the American spirit, okay? I'm getting <laughs> Absolutely in touch with the core values of our country. That's right. I'm just saying, Andrew, d- there's You're a- digging
1: in. You're digging into the guts of this country, and that's a good thing. And it is something that I think about with America often is we forget how gigantic this country is and how varied it is from region to region and how much there is to love and appreciate throughout America. And this is a really weird note to start the podcast on. The counterpoint that I would offer to what you're explaining is something that we discussed at the Hoover Dam like uh, I think it was two years ago maybe three years ago we went to visit it together as a podcast (laughs) and um, I think one of us looked at the Hoover Dam as an engineering marvel that we probably wouldn't be interested in pulling off today and um, so I think there's some of that out there as well like the national park system is amazing, but I wonder whether America would be able to enact something like a preservation policy along those same lines if we had to do it again today.
2: No, it's a great point. I mean, the corporations would probably be running amok and charging people $500 to go to the caverns instead of, you know, the uh, yeah. and, very and, reasonably and look, priced – kind
1: of a- that's a dour note to, to end your opening segment. No, uh, no, I think no. your point is more important. but
2: Well, no, I think it's, it's important to be realistic about these things and not to be pie in the sky. Uh, I guess my main <laughs> point is if we look at Twitter and the conversation that's happening on Twitter as reflective of the entire country, I think we're missing a lot of really good people, a lot of incredible diversity, a lot of geographic yeah. marvels, and let's just not forget about those things. Cause Andrew, I'm going to all these parks. I'm not seeing very many of my fellow American tourists. So I'm just calling on everybody as Ranger Rick right now. Step your road trip game up people. <laughs> I, I, I'm tired of only seeing foreign tourists. European tourists uh, are everywhere and they are yeah. uh, enjoying the bounty that we have to offer. In many cases, they're not tipping, which I don't appreciate. You know, they should definitely be taking care of their tour guides in certain situations. And look, you know, right. Let's just step it up as a country. That's all I'm saying. Let's appreciate each other. Let's appreciate the the greatness that uh, that our land has to offer, and let's move forward.
1: I love it, Ben. That is a great message to kick off the podcast with. Listeners, go enjoy America's Bounty, and please remember to tip your tour guides. I endorse that message wholeheartedly. And Ben, we should get into actual basketball now. Because
2: now let's talk about sh- Tommy Shepard. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> you mentioned Washington hey, and there's been a little news in Washington.
2: Don't even bother with the transitions on that one. Look, I set you up to fail there. <laughs> Sorry about that. We're gonna talk about the Wizards' incredible new front office. How excited are you?
1: Okay. Okay. So it began on Friday night around seven thirty PM with Candace Buckner, your Washington Post colleague breaking the news that the Washington Wizards will remove the interim tag on Tommy Shepard and name him general manager. And when that news came through, I was a little shocked, maybe mildly depressed, that the Wizards seemed to be Friday news dumping the hiring of their GM after a a two-and-a-half-month search. And really, it wasn't even just Friday news dumping. It was Friday night news dump at, like, 7.30 at night. But lo and behold there were more changes ahead and so we only got half the story on friday night because monday morning the wizards officially announced tommy Shepard as their new gm but they also announced a reshaped front office in the words of adrian wojnarowski because john thompson iii former georgetown hoyas coach is now leading athlete development and engagement a new department created within monumental sports And former NFL executive Sashi Brown will be head of planning and operations for Monumental. And Daniel Medina, late of the 76ers, will come on board as chief of athlete care and performance. So, Ben, I ask you, as an outsider, what do you make of all this? How does this look to you?
2: Well, I want to dig into and pick your brain on the, some of the specific hires and, and the people who are going to be, uh, you know, put into positions of authority. But I, I think the single biggest question that has to be asked here is, does Ted's like, do you trust Ted's vision and Ted the person uh, to be executing sort of this outside the box vision? Because he's trying to pitch this new like division of responsibilities. Uh, you know, maybe a more collaborative. Uh, front office with guys who have you know different roles that might not be totally traditional from an NBA standpoint, right? And he's going mm-hmm. outside the box in certain cases, you know, tapping the college ranks, tapping the NFL, kind of you know doing it in an unorthodox manner. And I think that we've seen other NBA owners try to go that route. Like when Steve Ballmer came in, uh, he reassessed the Clippers front office. He decided that having like one big, you know, grand poobah on Doc Rivers was not the way to go. So let's totally reshape how they do things, beef up the medical staff, like triple the staff uh, in the basketball operations department and really go that direction. Now, I think Steve Ballmer faced some skepticism uh, when he started that process because he was a newcomer, because he's this tech guy, he's an outsider uh, and whatever else, Uh, but You also knew he was a really, really smart guy. He was super passionate about basketball, and he was willing to spend unlimited resources to kind of get what he wanted. So you felt like at some point, sooner or later, it was going to go the right direction. Now, I look at Ted. He's been an owner for a long time. I don't think he's been the most committed financially to the Washington Wizards. Um, In terms of you know his vision and how it's worked in the past i'm not sure that we would say it's been you know league leading or uh cutting edge in any way right so when you're looking at right. this big sort of uh crossroads moment for your favorite franchise the washington wizards i think it boils down to this do you trust ted
1: oh and that's a loaded question my initial instinct would be to to approach this with cautious optimism because i do think Thinking outside the box is the right approach and um, the right direction to take this over the next few years. But you mentioned the parallels with the Clippers, and I think that's a really smart parallel to draw. And, um, And a key distinction would be that I'm sure the Clippers were throwing a lot more money at the problem than the Wizards will be. And the Clippers have a couple guys running that team. Before you even get to Jerry West... There's Mike Winger, there's Trent Redden, and there's Lawrence Frank. And all three of those guys are someone that you would be pretty excited about hiring to run your basketball team. And the Clips have been <laughs> able to retain them because they're willing to give them raises when other teams try to approach them and steal them away.
2: Yeah, they they post, uh, they post them in the first place too, remember? I mean, they had to bring all those yeah. guys, or, the, or at least uh, you know Trent and Winger. Those guys had really good jobs with organizations that were winning when they grabbed them.
1: Exactly. And I don't know if the anyone is trying to hire John Thompson III right now. I don't know how many other NBA teams were trying to hire Sashi Brown away from the NFL. Um, and so that's a, one reason for concern. Um, not necessarily like full-on pessimism, but concern. And Daniel Medina from the 76ers... Look, I'm not a doctor, but based on some of what I heard out of Philly over the last year or so, like the way they managed Joel Embiid was a byproduct of recommendations from that medical staff, and I didn't like the way they managed Joel Embiid, and I think that investing in your medical staff is like a huge inefficiency in the NBA and an area for smart teams to exploit, and so that would be the one hiring today that I'm most skeptical of. but in general, like, if you want to tell me that they're going to start making decisions by committee, then, then I'm all for it. And I like the idea of bringing in Sashi Brown as kind of a new voice and someone who can potentially take things outside the box as they approach this rebuild. But uh, I'm also worried that some of this is, is going to end up being more optics than substance. And um, that's one where we just kind of have to wait and see. Like if it's just Tommy Shepard running the team – that's fine, um, but that's not super exciting either, and that doesn't doesn't bode well for a team that really does need to get creative over the next couple of years as they sort of approach this next phase.
2: Yeah, I mean, did the Sixers like put aside the Joel Embiid thing? Didn't they have the most confusing handling of medical situations in the league the last three or four years? So like, if you're just looking at like the very top level surface level thing, you're bringing in a guy from the Browns who were basically the uh, NFL's biggest disappointment for multiple years. And you're bringing in one of the most polarizing, uh, medical, you know, somebody from one of the most polarizing medical staffs in the NBA. And that's your, uh, that's your fresh start. I mean, doesn't that scare you? You said cautious optimism. I'm surprised you're not just like (laughs) gripping over there. You're not, uh, you're you're not white knuckling this thing. I mean, come on.
1: I'm trying to be diplomatic here. I will say that there have been moments over the last month or so where I look around and I'm just like, why can't they just hire a GM? This shouldn't be that hard. And this is like, I wouldn't try to reinvent the wheel if I were the Wizards. I think it worked for the Clippers because they hired some of the smartest people in the NBA. Yeah, and and slow down, slow down. The,
2: The Clippers did not reinvent the wheel, right? They, they redid the rest of the car they got a new chassis and they put in a new engine and they put wings on the back but like the wheel in terms of the the basketball operations department was smart basketball lifers you know guys who've been doing it for years and years and years and we're just getting as many smart people as possible in that room to do it it was not let's cast this crazy net and bring in all these non-nba people uh you know because we think that they're going to have like new fresh visions for how to do it
1: yeah. Well, I think the the phrase I heard from Leonsis this week is that many hands make lighter work or make less work. And that would be some <laughs> of the rationale I guess the Clippers were working with. But like, I don't know, man. We'll see. Uh, it it would have yeah. been. Look, here's here's my thought. Here's my my prevailing thought is that. This approach is at least more creative and interesting than hiring Danny Ferry and just kind of like kicking the can down the road with Grunfeld Part 2 over the next four or five years. I think Tommy Shepard has a lot of really valuable relationships within the NBA and around the world as an international scout and is someone that I would prefer to hiring kind of a middle-of-the-road retread GM. So in that respect, I'm fine with the way things have shaken out. Everything else I am going to just kind of wait and see on because there's there's reason to worry. And there's you you can sell yourself if you want to buy into all the buzzwords in every press release this week. But um, let's just kind of hold off. The other thing you talk about uh, trusting Ted, I will say his interview with Adrian Wojnarowski. Did you get to read any of that article? I did. Well, there were a couple things he said in there that prompted a double take with me where he says, my belief is that you you can do things fast. We have the wherewithal and resources and facilities and technology. If we can bring John Wall back and with Brad, develop our draft picks and assets, start to manage the salary cap, why can't this be quick? It doesn't need to be a a five years it took when we drafted John and Brad. We can turn this one faster. That does not fill me with confidence for what's next. I think that the Wizards right now should be looking at this as like process part two. You don't necessarily have to bottom out like the Sixers did in part because the the lottery odds have changed. And so that approach is less lucrative. But you should be looking at it as like, let's do what the Nets did over the past couple years. Let's take gambles on young guys Let's take on bad contracts in exchange for picks, and let's just be patient and, and take a four-year view of, of where we want to be as opposed to trying to kind of like speed this along. And I'm not sure if everyone is on the same page with that plan.
2: No, I mean, it's incredibly muddled, uh, his messaging coming out of this. Like We want to want to be good fast, but we're, we don't have a plan yet clearly on how we're going to handle the John Wall situation. The other part that kind of made me nervous from Ted's uh, – statements was just how little uh past history he had with uh with Tommy Shepard I mean that to me was just like a red flag you know it's like I don't even know who this guy is I practically never talked to him you know it's like okay cool I'm glad that's how your organization works so it sounded like a lot of wishful thinking um and again that's why it comes back to the trust thing like do you want to believe in his wishful thinking do you want to pin your hopes on John Wall or do you want to go a different direction and I think that's where the NFL executive comes in I mean how much of what happened in Cleveland was purposeful? I mean, were they trying to do the tank that you're describing? You know, I don't really follow football. I don't, you know, I, I know who the Cleveland mm. Browns are, but I couldn't name any of their players. Like <laughs> I know that they went like one in 27 or something like that. Right. So yeah. were they, tr- were they trying to do that to set themselves up for what Baker Mayfield or whoever the, the high draft pick was. And, and they were trying to like come out of it with a process. Um, like in other words, is there a possibility that Ted's just trying to say the right things on the surface to get through this kind of a tricky period in the franchise's history. But in reality, he's laying the groundwork to do a process like you're describing.
1: Yeah, and and that's my my read on this um, and sort of my ultimate stance at the end of all these press releases. I If, if he is and if Sashi Brown is going to be empowered to make real decisions, I'm into that approach um, and I can get behind that plan. I worry that Sashi Brown is more of a figurehead and this is going to be kind of a traditional front office with Tommy Shepard running things and uh, which is fine, but again, like not terribly exciting. What I know of what Sashi Brown did in Cleveland is that it was a full-scale teardown. I like you have not followed the NFL closely enough to like, have a real informed take uh, (laughs) on the decisions he made. I did ask a couple friends about it and they were like, look, Sashi Brown is very smart and he's similar to Hinky. And, uh, and that is exciting to me because that's the kind of voice that we need in DC to kind of mix things up and take the long view and get a little bit more ambitious as far as like where some of these plans actually lead. Again, you go back to some of the decisions that have been made this summer. Like, Drafting Rui in the top ten doesn't fill me with confidence either. So yeah, stop right I there I mean, because that's,
2: I was going to offer you this choice. You can either have this outside of bo- uh, the box approach that Ted's trying to uh, execute with a, a thinker and Sashi Brown, who may be the guy who winds up getting you to the the process that you th- probably have come to uh, you know expect at this point, given the John Wall contract and the lack of talent and everything else. You can have that option. Or I'm going to give you another option where they don't do any of these other outside the box, uh, you know, thoughts, but they just hire like two or three really smart basketball guys to compliment uh, Tommy Shepard in a new look, more traditional front office. So maybe you're not getting the same quality that Clippers were able to get, but you're at least beefing up your, your traditional front office. Which of those two approaches would you have preferred?
1: I would feel more comfortable with option two. If you made Tommy Shepard the president of basketball operations and bring in a handful of really respected scouts from another organization or another two or three organizations, that would probably be the safer plan. But
2: Guess what, Andrew? You don't trust Ted. That's what it boils down to. We, we have determined that after 20 <laughs> minutes of careful analysis. Uh, we, we started with the most important question, and we came to the – Ultimate conclusion, you don't buy the vision. Yeah,
1: look, I'm willing to give this the benefit of the doubt. Just let me have that little glimmer of hope for the next year or so, and we'll see where we are by July 2020, where things stand with Beal, where things stand with Wall. But, yeah, look, this does not scream uh, – this, this this does not s- sort of signify an organization that has a coherent plan and vision for the future but um, maybe we'll stumble into one anyways. That's, that's the way I would put it at the end here.
2: Yeah, well, I can understand why they wouldn't use that as their official messaging, because that sounds like a <laughs> recipe for failure, but okay. Uh, uh,
1: one more whiz point here. From uh, We got a question from Eric who says, Sharpen Goliver, I thought I was done with all whiz news until summer 2020, and then I saw a segment on The Jump where Nick Friedell said that, If a team were to take on John Wall's contract with a Beal trade, the Wizards should do that deal in a heartbeat. But would the team really give up all that talent for nothing? And um, the point I need to make here is that if the Wizards should trade Beal, which I think they should eventually, it would be insane for them to try and use Beal to dump Wall elsewhere. And it's my understanding that they don't want to do that. So we'll see uh, how long that lasts. But like... Well, it would be very...
2: It'd be just mechanically, though, it would be very, very difficult to do that because their combined salary is so big that you'd have to be taking back something in almost any circumstance. And that something coming back you know if you're the wizards like you would want it to be a- as little long term commitments as possible you would want it to be as pure of a salary dump if you were going to pursue this thing and i just think that's a very very tricky type of trade to manufacture
1: well, not only that, but if you're making a team take wall on, that's going to cut the, the assets they're sending you in in half. And if you're if you're flipping Beal, you want to no, maximize you're not getting, whatever... You're reaping. not
2: getting any assets. <laughs> the asset is exactly. you don't have to pay wall.
1: <laughs> well, and not only that, teams are going to say, all right, well, look, we will take wall, but instead of sending you three picks, we're going to send you two picks now, or one pick and one young player. And it, it's like that's not the right way to approach a Beal trade if you're if you're trading him away you want to maximize the return you can get for just him and then turn around and figure out what you want to do with Wall and um, again I think that's the direction they're going to go but hold on a second
2: slow down though if you trade Wall and Beal you think you're getting multiple picks back in that deal
1: um, n- not if you trade Wall and Beal, because yeah. some team is going to say, "Look, if we're taking Wall, we're giving you maybe one asset or so. We're doing yeah. you a huge favor, and yeah, that's I, not I the way that they should be dealing."
2: I, I don't think you're getting anything back uh, of value if you make that deal. So that's why you're you're saying if you just trade Beal by himself, you're probably getting two, three, four quality assets, whether it's picks or young players in that deal. Right. And so w- you, what you're suggesting is. you're you're pretty much stuck with Wall, waited out. If you do trade Beal, he's going to be the the lever that gets you to the most promising rebuild, right? Like trading him and just maximizing his total value, a la the Paul George trade, get whatever you possibly can in uh, in that kind of a deal. That's how you want to go forward. Uh, I think there's a lot of sense to that. But what's the timing on that? What's your preferred timing if you do trade Beal? Obviously, I think the first answer would be never because you love Beal and you have this whole panda thing, which I still don't understand. But uh if it wasn't <laughs> if it wasn't never, uh when when do you want to do the Buell Trade? Like would you like to get out of in front of it this summer? Uh would you wanna do yeah. it at the trade deadline next summer? What's your idea?
1: Well, I would have been open to moving him this summer just to get out in front of what feels inevitable, but trade him as soon as you can. Trade him while the rest of the league seems to think that the title in twenty twenty is up for grabs and the picks I would be seeking are like a couple years down the line. And it, honestly, like we have this window right now where there are 10 teams that think they can win the title and see if you can exploit that somehow and see if you can get a couple of those picks in the 2020s because half the league has apparently stopped valuing those first round picks. And so that would be my goal for a deal return is like get a couple future assets a couple years down the line I do not want another pick in next year's draft because that draft class is pretty brutal already as you look up and down at, at who's going to be in it. Um, but that like I, that should be doable. And the nice thing about Beal is, while I was a little bit worried about them not trading him this summer and, and what that could do to his value, Beal's game fits so well on so many different contenders around the NBA. Like He should be able to retain... Good value whenever they deal him even if they do end up waiting until next summer he's a guy that a lot of teams can can imagine sliding in pretty seamlessly to their roster and uh i think that bodes well and then the the the, long story is
2: the thirst for beal in the western conference should be very 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 overwhelming i mean you know you've got teams like denver utah I mean, I I could even see Oklahoma City uh, potentially being interested. You know, like you can just go right down the list of these teams. I mean, if I was uh, San Antonio, I would be interested. Uh, You know, the Lakers, I think that they don't really have anything left to trade. But, I mean, they would kill for a guy like Bradley Beal. So there should definitely be a strong market. And there should be a, a strong market in the Eastern Conference, too. But what you're describing, all these teams jockeying for like a leg up, I think that Beal represents that leg up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so we'll see how that shakes out over the next twelve months. But I definitely think just in general, league wide, even beyond the my little wizard sphere here in DC, Beal is kind of a, a, a big wild card and, and maybe the next domino to fall as we forecast where the NBA is headed. And so then the ma- wizards can turn around and address Wall, <laughs> and we'll see how that ends as well.
2: Yeah, I think you're going to need some time. You're going to need some help with time on that one. Like you just need to run off his contract another year at least, and you know before it yeah. gets to a point where you can actually consider, uh, you know, finding a way to dump it. So you've made peace with the Beal trade. This is, I mean, I feel like I went away for one week, and now I'm dealing with a totally new person. You know, the the, <laughs> the lack of trust in the Wizards front office is gone you're ready to trade your best player your favorite guy I mean what what happened here
1: well I've been on I've been on the trade Beal bandwagon for a while so it's not a a huge new direction for me um but I'll be happy to cheer for him while he's still in DC so it's fine but as I've said in the past like As someone who's invested in Beal, I'll be excited to watch him wherever he goes. And at the same time, it'll be hard to watch him on a Wizards team that is like 20 games under 500 and Beal is out there with Isaiah Thomas and kicking out to Davis Bertons and Mo Wagner. Like, I don't know. I think it would be nice to see him on a contender because I do think that guy is like a top 20 player who can really help somebody chase a title
2: you know who should trade for him is the Dallas Mavericks what do you think
1: I've thought about the Mavs as a as a potential dark horse in the Beal sweepstakes um and yeah that would make a lot of sense I mean the Nuggets would make sense if you can get Beal for like Gary Harris and Michael Porter Jr I wouldn't be super excited about that return as a Wizards fan the issue with the Mavs though is like I don't know how much more they have to trade after everything they gave up for, for Zingis. I haven't really looked at their future assets, but if Dallas wants to throw in a 2024-2026 first-round pick, like sure, and throw in a, a swap. The one thing that's nice is like the Clippers and Lakers have set a ridiculous bar for what an all-star should field in a trade. So yeah, if that's the market, I, w- I would be open to it.
2: Yeah, I think my concern for you would be that maybe that was the market when everybody was just like completely thirsty and, you know, with the guns to their head from superstars saying, get me help. Did that window yeah. already close? You know, I think that's the question. And did Washington well, miss like look, the peak window?
1: It would be very, very wizard's to watch two superstars field two of the biggest trade returns the NBA has ever seen and then turn around six months later and find that the market for superstars has dried up and Beal's not quite a superstar on the level of Paul George and Anthony Davis, and then have to flip Beal for like 40 cents on the dollar. So I'm prepared for that as well. But you know, it's all part of the adventure here, but it was a nice, nice Monday morning surprise to have the wizards in the news. I I thought that the, the Tommy Shepard news dump was going to come and go without much passing comment from anyone who cares about the NBA, but like, hiring Sashi Brown was enough of a wild card to get people to remember the wizards exist for like 45 minutes on Monday morning.
2: Okay. How about this one? Eric Bledsoe and three first round picks for Bradley Beal.
1: Um, I'm into it. it look, I've, <laughs> I've thrown out in, in my darker moments, like at 1130 at night at the end of depressing wizards games over the last couple years, I've thrown out Beal to the bucks just to pair him with Giannis so if the Bucs want to give us a King's ransom for Beal, uh, I can definitely get on board with that plan, and then I just become a full time, a full time Bucks fan.
2: Yeah, I mean, you throw in Middleton, you're talking about the big, the best big three in the game, right? I mean, that's,
1: that's just... <laughs> exactly. Who's stopping <laughs> them? Like that Bleacher Report tweet with the Celtics. Um, I actually think Milwaukee
2: right. needs to pursue this full blast. I think this is a great idea for them um yeah I think it could actually work out pretty well for you I mean you need a point guard um uh, you know and I I would pity you having to watch Bledsoe for a couple of years like running you know a tanktastic team around for you know completely pointless oh games God. month after month that would be a pretty rough watch but I do think that they and I guess also the problem is their picks aren't great right so you'd have to you'd have to like extend those out and, and pray for a you know a Giannis departure in 2021 that could like turn those picks into total gold but I don't know, man. I think there are some pretty good options for Beale. That's what we are uh, learning. And hopefully Tommy Shepard has, uh, you know, at least seriously considered the options.
0: After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kid, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America cash rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation.
1: Yeah, and that would leave me in a really strange spot as both a Wizards fan and a Giannis fan, and then at that point, a... <laughs> Uh, born again Bucks fan, I would sort of have to be rooting for Giannis to eventually leave, at least leave before like 2025. But um, but we'll see. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. The Bucks segue is a good one because we have to talk about Giannis. But first, Ben, a quick word from today's sponsor. Today's show is brought to us by Raycon. Ben, it is 2019 and everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you guys go dropping hundreds of dollars on a new pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. I've been sent a pair, I really enjoy them for running and traveling. They have been a game changer. The Raycon earbuds also start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as amazing. Ben, tell me a little bit more about Raycon.
2: Raycon was actually co-founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy, J.R. Smith are all already obsessed with the products. Raycon's E50 wireless earbuds have totally changed the game for me. They're so comfortable and so easy to take anywhere. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet, with no dangling wires or stems. And of course, they don't just look great, they sound great too. Raycon offers their wireless earbuds for everyone in a range of fun colors at an unbeatable price. Go to buyraycon.com/floor to get 15% off your order. That's buyraycon.com/floor for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. If you've been eyeing a pair, now is the time to get an amazing deal. One more time, buyraycon.com slash floor.
1: Buyraycon.com slash floor. All right, let's get back into it. We've got this question here from Benjamin who asks, Can the founding members of Giannis Inc. talk through a fantastic off-season for Milwaukee and Giannis and Dedekumbo? The Bucks needed to do everything they could to convince Giannis to stay, and they did just that, bringing back essentially their entire core. Coupled with this, Giannis and Nike dropped the Zoom Freak Ones, which are the hottest shoe in basketball right now. So, Ben, what's your reaction to that? Because I feel like... That is a generous reading on Milwaukee's offseason, but a very accurate reading on the Zoom Freak Ones and the Giannis Nike publicity tour.
2: I mean, this sounds like it's coming from the Bucks uh, ownership group. I don't know if it's a child of the (laughs) owner or a relative of some sort. Um, I think Milwaukee did okay. I mean, to me, they treaded water. I think that a lot of their you know, minor moves around the edges. I think other people got more excited about them than I did, whether it was Wesley Matthews or this Kyle Corver thing. Um, yeah. You know, Robin, Robin Lopez. Like, I you know, I think that they were all uh, – there was no grand mistake, right? I think the biggest debate was the Brogdon decision. You know, when you – after all the dust settled, I guess it really wasn't that surprising that they didn't, you know, fork over just crazy money to keep him and then, you know, run the risk of, you know, running up luxury tax bills and all that stuff. I like the fact they were able to get assets back for Brogdon because I think that sets up future trades. And I think they're going to have to, frankly, upgrade the talent on this roster to keep Giannis happy. I mean, I think that, to me, they're going to enter next season with more external pressure and more external noise than they faced at any point over the last five years. And it's not even going to be close. And if they don't get over the hump, life is going to come at them so fast, so hard, And I'm not totally sure that they're prepared for it. Because when I talk to people, you know, from Milwaukee, it's like their mentality is, oh, it's a slam dunk. Giannis is staying. Like, don't worry about it. And I appreciate that Mm -hmm. sentiment for sure. Um, But people change, people grow. And we've seen superstars who seem like they were locks to be there forever, uh, you know, not wind up, you know, kind of sticking with that, you know, same formula. So I didn't think that Milwaukee was big winners this summer. I thought, you know, they did, you know, decent. But I think that there could be fireworks to come, whether it's that Bud relationship, whether it is, uh, you know, with Giannis, whether it is, uh, you know, really needing to go all in to land a a big time player to put alongside Giannis next summer. I mean, to me, I just yeah. think that if they can't get to the finals this year, it's sort of like an ultimatum year, right? Um, uh, if they don't, uh, it's going to get you know pretty dire. And I, I don't think I would have said that. I would I wouldn't have had that same read. If they had, you know, made us had a splashier summer, if they had been able to add uh, talent and kind of keep up in the arms race,
1: yeah. And it, it's hard to grade them too harshly because they didn't have a ton of flexibility to do that and to go outside the box and and add like a real second superstar next to Giannis. But they, the reason this summer sort of felt ominous to me is they've now locked themselves into a nucleus. That just wasn't good enough around Giannis last year and their upward mobility is going to depend on Giannis getting much better, which is certainly possible. Uh, Like I again to go back to his little publicity tour here. It's been great to have him out and giving interviews. He didn't really give interviews all season long beyond talking to like a handful of Bucks beat reporters. But, uh, you know, he was out there talking about, I need to get 60% better. Or no, I'm only 60% as good as I think I'll eventually be. And he talked about improving his reads, improving his shooting, getting better at beating double teams. And it's funny because, like, with other superstars, you can kind of tell that they've been coached to say those things. With Giannis... You, he really believes that he's going to be much better than he was last year, and uh, I love. And he will to that be,
2: dude. He will yeah. be. I mean, he's done it for five straight years, and he continues to be, you know, as dedicated to the sport as any superstar out there. So I expect improvement from Giannis. He's not the question. I also think part of the problem with locking into that core that you're describing is that those guys all look better in Milwaukee than they would look in a vacuum because of Giannis, Definitely. right? Yeah. So it, well, it's a little and, bit and of and the old. Lopez the old
1: is a guy. Well, and so what I would add there is that, like, with Brook Lopez, he's 31 years old, and you're throwing a lot of money at him over the next few years. And if another team did that, we would all kind of, like, cross our fingers and say, I mean, that's one way to go, but that feels kind of dangerous. Because Brook Lopez fits so well with Giannis, I understand why it made sense for Milwaukee. But these are some big bets the Bucks are making and if it were happening elsewhere, there would be reason for concern. And really the only reason to not be concerned is that Giannis is that amazing. And he's the, the one guy who could potentially make all this work.
2: Yeah, there's no question. You know, we got a we got an emailer to send in uh, a question that said, would the best NBA storyline for the coming season be the Warriors winning the finals and Steph getting his uh, uh, finals MVP? To me, the best storyline for next season would be Giannis. Leading this like ragtag group of misfits that he's like turned into uh, a pretty incredible, uh, you know, supporting cast over one of the big market teams like the Lakers and the Clippers that are superstar dominated that sort of quote unquote won the summer because that would blow everybody's mind and it would also, uh, you know, the small market, big market thing would become like a huge, uh, you know, overarching storyline, but it would also force us to like rethink. You know, what does winning the summer mean? It would just basically like blow up every preconceived notion that we have, you know, and we've come to over here over the last 12 months. Unfortunately, though, and I I hate to sound like a downer, it's hard to envision that happening. You know, I think Milwaukee's got a really good chance to come out of the East. um, But I am concerned uh, with the quality Uh, of of the supporting cast in terms of are they going to be able to withstand the pressure? Can they step up uh, in some of these moments? Are they going to be able to get better? I know Giannis will get better. But a lot of guys kind of had quote unquote career years in terms of fit and production last season. A lot of their guys enjoyed really good health and i guess i'm worried that you know some of these new investments that you're describing may come back to earth a little bit next season and then where does that leave milwaukee you know a- a- as they approach this crossroads these are my concerns yeah. look i'm not happy about it i don't want to be the downer who reigns on the yannasing parade but i'm sort of like the accountant you know who's kind of like checking the books below the surface and being like guys you know this isn't quite <laughs> adding up you know something's missing here that's sort of my mentality right now with the bucks
1: yeah, so we're both similarly concerned, I would say, and I, we'll we'll see whether Giannis is amazing enough to just make it all work regardless. The It, it is interesting, because I think when you talk about external pressure, there is going to be so much angst around the NBA projected onto Giannis and what he decides to do in Milwaukee and whether he makes a trade demand I don't think he would make a trade demand next summer, but I think if he doesn't sign that Supermax extension, the Bucks will have to at least look around and say, well, I mean, what offers are out there? I don't think they'll have any offer that is better than just heading into that final year of Giannis's deal and trying to win a title and keep him that way, the same way the Thunder did with Kevin Durant. But if he eventually leaves... It's going to spark a whole new conversation about small markets in the NBA and how they are able to compete, whether they're able to compete, and how hard it is for them to sort of like exist within this ecosystem.
2: No, the the, the symbolic value of Giannis' decision is going to be huge, and the vultures are going to be swirling next summer. And if you're John Horst after preaching – uh, you know, building around Giannis and his virtues, and trying to sell him as the MVP and the Defensive Player of the Year, and getting all these different players who fit with his style, and bringing in a coach who's going to get the most out of them. You know, all of a sudden you're on this rush timeline of you know the NBA life, where now you have to consider trading him. And the last time we saw a team like really stuck with that sort of a you know a philosophical decision, it was the Thunder, and they just chose to wrote it out, uh, ride it out with Kevin Durant, right? And that blew yeah. up in their face. That definitely set them back. And, you know, if you're a Milwaukee, you probably have to learn from that decision, right? You have to, you know, at least consider your so. alternatives next summer. Well, you know, then that could get really, really dark. And like you're, you're, you've are you're, got billboards with Brooke Lopez at 33 as the face of your franchise. How's that feel?
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the precipice that they're dealing with regardless, um, because if you trade Giannis – you're what you're getting like three or four picks. I I don't really know how you sell a future in Milwaukee beyond Giannis just because him leaving is going to leave such a massive vacuum regardless that you're going to be dealing with like, I it's going to be demoralizing however he leaves. So you might as well take your title shots while you have them over the next two seasons. But, uh, Again, all of this is, is premature as far as the Bucks are concerned, but it is something that the rest of the league is going to be watching incredibly closely over the next two years. And um, that's that's where the Bucs offseason kind of left us, like not keeping Brogdon. I think Brogdon is flawed in a lot of respects, but he was a valuable piece in the playoffs, and the playoffs are all that should matter to the Bucs right now. So I was yeah, a little well, surprised. Well,
2: well, spin it this way. If you were one of Giannis's advisors, if you were actually part of Giannis Inc., the real Giannis Inc., would you be looking at this summer as evidence that the Bucks did everything they possibly could to keep Giannis happy, or would you be wondering why they didn't pay Brogdon or wondering why they couldn't get on any of the other action? And then if you got to next summer, knowing that, would you be advising Giannis to take the supermax or to play it out? Because I think he's going to be one of those guys who's in that similar LeBron situation or KD situation where the shorter term contracts and maximizing leverage and giving yourself as many options as possible. That's going to apply to him. Like he is one of those guys where like, he's going to be almost injury proof in terms of his earning capability here over the next five or six years. Right. I think if I was in his uh, advising group, I would say Milwaukee could have done more. And I would not recommend locking into a long-term Supermax contract next summer. Where would you stand?
1: Yeah, I would not recommend locking myself in regardless. And that could actually be an interesting question on its own is whether we might see Giannis sign a shorter term deal, basically turn down the Supermax deal in Milwaukee, but sign like a two or three year deal to stay with the Bucks eventually. Because, we haven't seen that third door be opened by any superstar so far. We've basically seen, all right, here's a Supermax. I'm going to turn this down. And then the incumbent team feels like they then have to trade him to maximize the value they get for whatever their franchise player is. But maybe Giannis is willing to kind of meet somewhere in the middle and stay in Milwaukee while the rest of that nucleus is still in place. Maybe see if the cap goes up, see if some like newfound flexibility materializes in a couple years and um and approach it that way because that's on the table as well and that would be a nice way to avoid the shitstorm that would ensue if he does just leave and and then you've got like 15 or 20 small markets around the nba looking around being like well look the bucks did almost everything right and they were making the conference finals every year and Giannis still left and so where does that leave us uh, because that, I think, is is the other option on the table. And it's, and it's realistic.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, this is a good discussion. We're foreseeing the future 12 months in advance. If you had to guess right now, where does Milwaukee's season end? Does it end in a title, in the finals, Eastern Conference finals? Like, right now, what's your gut say?
1: I feel like it probably ends in the Eastern Conference finals. I like what the Sixers did this summer. And part of what I worry about with the Bucks is, like, all right, so Giannis, as much credit as we want to give Kawhi for, for shutting down Giannis um, in the conference finals this past season, like, the Raptors had three guys to throw at Giannis wherever he went with Marcus Saul and Siakam helping out Kawhi, and they were better equipped to guard him than just about any team in the NBA. And that's now true of Philly. You throw Embiid, Simmons and Al Horford into the mix as guys that can bother Giannis. And uh, not that Simmons, I don't know if you put him in that category after some of the big brothering we saw from Giannis uh, toward the end of last season, but like Horford and Embiid are about as good as any team is going to be able to do against him. And so I worry that Philly is going to be able to build a wall and make Giannis's life miserable, and then the rest of the Bucks won't be able to beat the Sixers. Um but yeah, I think it's I think it's conference finals or finals. And um I don't know, man. I, I, I think that uh that's like I don't know if that's good enough, and I don't know if that's gonna make these questions go away if we continue to see the buck supporting cast falter.
2: I think the key indicator of like how things are actually going in Milwaukee, because this past year was a complete joyride and it's really hard to remake a joyride. I think the key indicator will be Giannis's postseason minutes um, next year. Yeah. Like, If they're in a healthy place and things are actually going the way they're supposed to, then Coach Bud's philosophy of keeping the minutes off of Giannis will continue. If they're starting to feel tight, if they're starting to feel the pressure from the outside, if they're starting to feel pressure from Giannis just demanding that he takes the next step in his career, I think Bud's approach to Giannis, the kind of the careful handling of him oh we're going to play him like you know less than 40 minutes in the playoffs in, in crucial games that will go by the wayside and so to me that's kind of one of those like key indicators i'm going to be looking for like what cracks first like bud's philosophy or Giannis like publicly going along with it you know what i mean
1: yeah definitely all right so i have two more notes to hit on the bucks discussion um number one how did you interpret the Bucks signing Giannis's brother at the end of this offseason?
2: Well, Andrew, you know how I interpreted it. I told them to do that three years ago. Um, they should have been <laughs> signing all of his brothers. They should have been hiring all of his family members. It's one of the few things that they can really do to show him uh, exactly how much uh, he means to them going above and beyond. And uh, I think they should continue to do it. I mean, look, I understand the negatives of nepotism, but I would rather have for Atena kupos than zero. And so I think, uh, uh, you know, LeBron paved the way for this, getting all of his buddies on Cleveland's payroll and, you know, security staff members and coaches and all these different things, you know, uh, also other players on the roster there, you know, his handpicked, uh, you know, supporting cast members. Giannis yeah, deserves James the same Jones. treatment. Yeah, Giannis deserves the same treatment, right? And so if the options are like, you know, some random guy has a 15th roster spot or someone who's going to keep Giannis happy in a good mind state... Uh, that that uh, investment should pay major dividends.
1: Okay. I'm mostly with you. Part of me read it a little bit more cynically where it was the Bucks saying, all right, well, we didn't pay Malcolm Brogdon and we weren't willing to go into the luxury tax, but here's a minimum contract for your brother. He can come hang out. And I don't know if that's the way to keep Giannis. I think like. Building a legit title nucleus is going to be a lot more compelling once it time once it's time for him to decide in free agency. Well, they should have
2: done uh, both, right? I mean, those aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah.
1: Yes, I think that's the that's the correct read. But doing one is also uh, nice and smart if you're uh, on the Bucks side. And then the other note I had on our Giannis Inc. board meeting agenda here is, what did you think of the shoes?
2: Um, the shoes are solid, and I didn't like the initial couple colorways. I didn't think they led with their best, um, but right. some of the cu- the custom, like, player edition uh, Giannis ones are fantastic. I love how much visibility he's getting going to the Drew, having that rally in Milwaukee, you know, being overseas. I mean, Nike did a really, really good job with this uh, rollout, and to me, uh, you know, we kind of bagged on them for years for not necessarily, you know, getting the shoe out quick <laughs> enough and, and all that, yeah. but they've more than kind of overcompensated for it, but I have a juicy hypothetical for you right now. Hit me. Let's say Giannis enters uh, free agency in 2021 and he tells all of his suitors to get me. You don't need to go trade for Paul George, like Kawhi Leonard. You also have to max out my brother and you have to maybe even max <laughs> out my second brother. How much money would you be willing as an NBA owner to commit to the Atena Kupo family in real contracts and years? In other words, if you were, say, Masai Ujiri for the Toronto Raptors, would you take yeah. three max contract slots and give them to Giannis and his two brothers for the right to get Giannis? And put aside the fact this is not the best approach to you know crafting a title contender and all that— Let's just say that, right. was his dem- that was his demand. Are you willing to give like $110 million per year to that family? What do you think?
1: Well, no. Let's say Giannis is definitely too smart to adopt this as sort of an, an ultimatum that he's giving to teams around the, the NBA. But let's say we made that ultimatum on his behalf and forced teams around the league to choose. I think you're then going to be limiting your pool of potential destinations for Giannis, Because I would say 10 to 15 to 20 teams in the NBA probably have too much dignity to just sacrifice their entire roster and their entire salary cap to the Antetokounmpo family. But a team
2: like... But should they? Should they have this (laughs) dignity? Would you rather have Giannis and no dignity or no Giannis and your dignity intact? I mean, as the Miami Heat, they've got all sorts of dignity, but they haven't had very many wins lately.
1: Yeah, well that's the those are the types of teams I'm envisioning. I'm t- I'm thinking about teams like the Charlotte Hornets. Like in a couple years, they're going to have a lot of cap space. And so maybe MJ just says, "We might as well throw it at this one guy who I know gives a shit and I know will sell tickets and I know will give us a baseline of around 50 wins. We just watched him make it work with, you know, Eric Bledsoe, Brook Lopez, a bunch of sort of replacement level starters uh maybe Giannis is worth it even if we have to pay 70 million dollars to his brothers I think that's the type of team I I would imagine for Giannis if if he's making the the LeVar ball demands
2: I'll say this. I think it's a no-brainer to max at least one of his brothers because we talk about, okay, what's the no. value of <laughs> max players? Like, you know, everybody always has that conversation, like there shouldn't actually be a max contract because the very best players are worth way more than the, the capped max would be. Like, you know, James yeah. Harden or LeBron James, like those guys' contributions to winning are so consistent and, and and far outpace the the money that they're making. To me, I think that you could easily justify Paying Giannis a max and one of his brothers a max, I think I would draw the line on the second brother though. That would be my negotiation sticking point. I couldn't do it. So Giannis, pick one of your brothers. We'll max him out and just come here, <laughs> and, and you'll be our big two, and we'll we'll build a roster around you. I, I'm not even kidding right now. Like I'm, I'm being genuinely serious. Like I think that you know, a player of his stature, you know, we're talking about a top two, three, four player in the league. Is worth what, $60 million per year? Uh, I mean, you're basically guaranteeing yourself a, a chance to compete for a title by having that guy and surrounding them with sort of, uh, you know, minimum contract type players. I mean, that's sort of been Houston's model here, uh, you know, building around James Harden. He's kept them in the mix year after year after year. I think it's a financial argument that pencils out. And look, I'm not happy about <laughs> defending nepotism here. I don't want to come off like I'm a member of like the British royal family or something. I just think. Like That's how much he's really worth, and it would be hilarious if some player of that magnitude came along and that was like the type of demand that he made because I think there would be teams that would go along with it, frankly.
1: Yeah. Well, I love it, man. Listen, this is your week of enlightenment. You're traipsing through the caverns and remembering that America is a majestic country full of sights and sounds that we should all be experiencing out there in the wild. And then you're also realizing that Giannis Tetacumpo has the power to make LeVar Ball's vision a reality. And um, I, for, for, as someone who's invested in his success, I hope he doesn't do that because I want him to have real help, whether it's in Milwaukee or somewhere else. I will say, to double back to the shoes, I was very, very concerned when after a year and a half of us harassing Nike about finally releasing them, they threw out the all-black colorways first, and that's, that's all we had for the first like week or two. And those shoes were pretty ugly, but they have only gotten better since then. And at some point in the next few weeks, I'm sure I will spend way too much money on a bunch of Giannis gear. But either way, it's been fun to see him hitting the interview circuit a lot more this summer than he did this season. I think that's, that's a testament to the power of like a $10 million Nike check. But if Giannis is going to be the face of the NBA, it's nice to see that he will—he's willing to embrace the spotlight and has the charisma to carry some of these interviews.
2: Oh, we—we we knew he had the charisma; he was just hiding it from us. Uh, I think on the logo, from a distance, so up close, I really like the logo, his like GA logo. But from a distance, it has shades of that Adidas triangle. And then they came mm-hmm. out right off the top with the black and white tracksuit, which is like the most uh adidas item there is like every single soccer kid you know in the 80s and 90s grew up with a black and white adidas tracksuit so i didn't love it didn't feel like completely nike but then they went the other direction with the giant swoosh freak t-shirt which unfortunately i don't think i'm cool enough to wear in public because i don't want people seeing it and being like oh this guy thinks he's a freak that's pretty awesome (laughs) great cool um But but like some of the other gear, like the, the hoodies and the T-shirts, uh, I thought were more kind of like classically Nike. And they were able to kind of like find a nice uh, balance between Giannis's branding and their own branding. But uh, yeah, I thought the the logo, I mean, this isn't going to be another like claw situation where they're going to get themselves into a lawsuit like Kawhi Leonard. But I just thought the logo was a little bit too much Adidas influenced for my taste.
1: Well, first of all, I had to do the same calculus in my head with the freak logo because they put it on some sweatshirts also, and it's just a really cool logo, but it's a really cool logo for Giannis to wear and not for yeah. me to wear. And it's are tough you, to pull are that you a,
2: Are you a self-identified freak? Like if you just bought that <laughs> and Alice came home from work, you know, putting in what probably 16 hour days, I'm sure she's, you know, just grinding it out. And you're sitting yep. there, you know, playing some FIFA during the off season with the freak sweatshirt. How's that going over?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I it would definitely get a weird look from Alice. She would actually understand. She would probably understand that it's a reference to Giannis. Um, or certainly, once I explained it, she would get it. She'd be like, "Oh, of course. You have to rep Giannis. You've been repping him for five years." But I think I, it's it's more the strangers that I'm worried about as far as like what message I would be sending. But I'm glad you brought up the other logo additionally, because the aside from the Adidas similarities, it is almost the exact same logo that Fred Van Vliet uses for his clothing brand. And I don't know if you are familiar with the Van Vliet logo, but it, it leaves me with sort of like a conflict of interest.
2: Dude, it's not a conflict of interest. You don't have enough chambers <laughs> in your heart for both. I mean, that's that, that's exactly. the bottom line. Yeah. Whoever is
1: prepping Van Vliet should sue Nike, though. That's my takeaway.
2: Yeah. I just think that like, you know, for the next round of Giannis gear, Nike, strong start. Okay, we're going to give you a B plus here, I think, overall. But just keep in mind, like, make a T-shirt that your casual NBA fans across all demographics would feel comfortable wearing to the mall. Okay, because the freak shirt did not pass the Andrew Sharp test. He's not going to wear that to the mall. And that's a problem, because when you buy clothes, you want to wear them. So let's just keep that in mind as your next mission statement.
1: (laughs) Okay, Um, and let's move on, because we've now done a full hour on the Bucks and Wizards, which is extremely on brand for the Open Floor podcast. Let's finish off here. We've got a bunch of questions that we'll get to later in the week. But I do want to talk about your coach rankings from the Washington Post newsletter that hit my inbox Monday morning. Uh, Explain the exercise and explain your findings as you ranked the five coaches with the toughest job this year.
2: No, I mean, it wasn't really a ranking. I was just going through some interesting coaching challenges that have sort of emerged from now that the, the dust has settled Um, I mean, it was mainly sparked because I just feel such deep pity for Mike D'Antoni. I mean, God, this guy's got so many different things. He's got (laughs) to juggle. And so I was trying to think, okay, who are some of these other coaches that are also in tight spots? I think we've probably been over Frank Vogel, how he's like the forgotten man in LA and he's doing, I mean, he has a real juggling act. Like, wasn't he on Letterman at some point juggling, like when he was a little kid, like he had some like kind of bandstand act. Um, pretty sure that happened.
1: Like Tiger Woods or something.
2: Yeah, like yeah, he was like a young kid. And he, had, you know, here's like this one man band type of thing. But uh, he is going to be needing all of those skills, trying to like piece it together with LeBron and Anthony Davis. He's already been kind of like publicly contradicted in terms of you know LeBron's going to play point guard and Vogel's like, wait a minute, that's news to me. Uh, he has a, a lack of plus defenders that he's going to try to put together. I mean, his entire career, it's been kind of a defensive minded uh, reputation. Uh, Offensive creativity, I think, for him has been a question mark. And I think this is going to be a team, if they succeed, that's going to have to have a really creative offense. And so, is he just standing and watching LeBron? Um, You know, how is that dynamic going to play out? Uh, But there's some Mm -hmm. others, too. I mean, I think, you know, for a Golden State, uh, you know, one uh, issue they've got is just like they're very reliant on Steph Curry to remain healthy. You know, they've had issues. Uh, in past couple seasons where if he gets uh, hurt, you know Kevin Durant has to take over some of the playmaking duties and their offense looks a little bit choppier. I mean, they were still able to succeed because of that superstar talent, uh, but yeah. it didn't look the same. It didn't feel the same. I mean, now you're taking well, Durant out of the mix. You're taking Sean Livingston out of the mix. You're taking Andre Iguodala out of the mix. You're hoping D'Angelo Russell can wind up being the guy who you know kind of carries those minutes, but he's a totally different style uh, playmaker. Uh, and Klay Thompson is going to be injured, you know, off the bat. So you don't have that floor spacing uh, threat. I just think that, you know, for Golden State, like uh, that seems like an awful big hole. And it wouldn't take a very long absence from Steph for that to to really kind of, uh, you know, shine through and, and make them look like a team that, you know, is a far cry or like totally different than they were, you know, during some of their past years. And I think one thing that goes under discussed about Steph was he had like pristine health for the MVP seasons, right? And before Durant yep. got there, like they were so consistent and so good because he was never off the court. Uh, and I think that's kind of a, a question for Golden State coming in this season is like, uh, it, can he get back to being that guy? Like, does he? Is there a way where he can be just like indestructible, always on the court? And if so, they're going to be great. If not, uh, I don't know where Steve Kerr goes for answers. So these were just a few of the questions that I was kind of uh, batting about. As I was thinking, yeah. Well, the
1: the Kerr thing is really interesting because when you listen to the Warriors talk about their vision for the future, they will often bring up the Spurs as the as the franchise blueprint that they're trying to imitate. But a big reason the Spurs were able to extend their window as long as they did is that Popovich was great at developing guys, and the front office was great at finding the right guys for Pop to try and develop and optimize. And one of the holes in the Warriors' plan over the last couple years has been like kind of striking out on that front. You know, I mean, Jordan Bell, I was shocked by how unplayable he was during the finals. They didn't have much help on the wing. Patrick McCaw, people got really excited for the first six months of his career with the Warriors, and then it all kind of went sideways from there. He went AWOL. And, like, I don't want to pin all of that on Kerr, but it is sort of an open question as to how effectively he's going to be able to develop someone like um, Eric Pascal from from Villanova or Jordan Poole from Michigan or Glenn Robinson the Third. Also from Michigan, someone who I still believe in based solely on how much I loved his Michigan teams like five years ago. But like that's the area that I'm I'm excited to watch with, with Kerr and what he does uh, over the next year or two in Golden State. It's like is he able to get the most out of those role players and these fair parts that the the Warriors are gonna have to maximize those guys if they really want to be elite over the next five years, which I think is still on the table, but um, but we have to wait and see whether they can actually do that.
2: Yeah, I think the other comparison with the Spurs is that Duncan was great for 20 years straight, right? You know, and he was yeah. like relatively healthy and held up and was like that pillar for a really, really long time. And I think, you know, with Steph, it's a different challenge because of the size, because of the position. I think he's going to age very, very, very well. Um, but I just don't think that these Warriors are in the same position as like the Spurs were for a lot of those years um in terms of being able to deal when he is off the court uh and if he does miss time like due to injury i think some people might say well Draymond could kind of like step forward as a point guard um uh, you know i think that works no, in kind of no a, se- a secondary like, capacity right but like that's a huge like that's a huge huge hole they've got right now and i yeah. just don't trust d'angelo Russell i mean that's part of it too like i think that he could be an effective complementary scorer for them. I think he can help buy them time in an ideal world, become a trade asset for them. Uh, but like to turn the entire car keys over to him if Steph misses like 10 games because of an ankle, that would make me very, very nervous if I was a Warriors observer.
1: Well, and again, it's going to be a huge test for Kerr and whether he can connect with someone like D'Angelo Russell because a lot of times what we've seen is basically guys are difficult to coach and then they are just marginalized and their development stalls entirely. And then you look up and someone like Jordan Bell is completely unusable in the finals or Patrick McCaw is on his third team. And, like, and so that's the, the step that has been skipped over the past few years is like working through some of those frustrations. And D'Angelo Russell is obviously like 10 times more talented than those other guys. So there's reason for Kerr to stay invested uh, and there also aren't four Hall of Famers anymore, so that's that's another thing that like that. I think Kerr is going to have more motivation to connect with those guys and sort of like foster those relationships. But um, the last coach that I would throw out there before we wrap up, what about Mike Malone in Denver?
2: Uh, that's a good one. I think that for him. So I was focusing on sort of like positional challenges or you know the actual like X's and O's types challenges. I think for him. Uh, there's not a lot of that because so much of the rotation returns. So I think it's more about, like, uh, is it more of a motivational test for him in terms of being able to make sure some of these guys continue to take the next step forwards in their career? Um, I think just part of the reason why I didn't include him is I have so much respect for Jokic as a guy who elevates the players around him and, and serves as a you know a pretty high floor or basement for their team. Um, I just yeah. think he's you know that level of a guy that... It takes a lot of the pressure uh, off the coach, but I'm curious why you think he's uh, got himself in the crosshairs.
1: Well, I wonder – I mean, again, I'm looking at teams with like super high expectations and and what might happen if those expectations aren't met. And Denver is a team that literally on the last podcast we were talking about how good they could be next year and why they may be sort of the sleeper to go win the West – But if they don't do that and if things get complicated halfway through the year, Malone is a guy who I, I wonder how much job security he would have and, um, and making things fit with Jamal Murray and getting the most out of him is its own sort of adventure. And so I just think that there's a little bit more intrigue there than meets the eye for a team that has sort of seemed like one big happy family and one of like the best stories in the league over the past few years. Um, there's been scrutiny on Malone at various points, like kind of beneath the surface, maybe not beneath the surface in Denver, but like to among the mainstream, there that hasn't been a, a big story, but it could be a bigger story if the Nuggets aren't as good as they're supposed to be, like by March next year.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think that, and not to be a you know distant outsider here again, but I think you buy a little bit too much into this basketball Twitter expectations and then like real life expectations, like the Nuggets don't even rate in Denver, you know, <laughs> like, come on. Like, are there going to be people calling for Michael Malone's job if they're the seven seed uh, locally? I'm not sure I see that. I think the no basketball way. dorks, I think, the basketball dorks I will be think really dead uh,
1: wrong about that. I, I think that that's, that's completely wrong because the less people actually understand about basketball, the quicker they are to say, oh, this team isn't winning as much as we thought. Fire the coach. Right. I mean, that happens in but, Philly literally every other day
2: but people actually care about basketball and feeling they care about the Sixers deeply. And like they rate in Denver, like Tim Connolly, if he has to read that column saying fire the coach, he will just dismiss it because he knows he knows more than the critics. Right. Like he's confident uh, in what they've been able to accomplish to me. I think that, uh, you know, Denver in their life cycle, they still haven't gotten to the point yet where like they are so, you know, discussed and, and, and broken down and they have such a fan base where, uh, they're going to, you know, those kinds of cracks are going to start to show. Like, I think barring like, you know, a 35 win season, I feel like they're mm-hmm. on, a, on a pretty steady path with that organization. And they kind of believe in the, in the major personalities there. I mean, they re-upped Connolly which I thought was a, a real sign of, uh, you know, respect from ownership and, you know, a belief in their vision. And I think that there hasn't been much distance between Connolly and Malone on a lot of uh, the key issues and they're still so young that like even if they did take a step back next season their their future is still pretty promising they've got their guys locked up they know who they are um so i don't know i'm not sure i see a ton of pressure on him even though i think that they could definitely fall short of expectations i just don't know if that would blow back on the coach uh, in the same way it might in a different market
1: interesting okay i would say two years ago that they were pretty close to firing malone and um as, as great a guy as he is and as much as the players seem to like him denver is all in on the nucleus uh, of that roster they're all in on Connolly and the one guy who I think they could move if things aren't going the way ownership wants them to wants them to would be uh changing the coach but I like that you're confident I also think the nuggets are going to be good so a lot of this is probably moot but just something that popped into my head as I was reading your your newsletter this morning. Two questions well, at the very end here. What?
2: I was going to say, no, they... they I agree that they were actually pretty close to firing Malone a couple of years ago. And at that time, to me, it made sense. Like there was definitely a year where I thought they should just move on. He, he's not connecting with these guys. You know, the locker rooms kind of mess. I mean, they had a lot of uh, personality conflicts, I think, at times. I think they're in a more peaceful uh, state as an organization. I think Jokic, his personality and his skill, frankly, has a lot to do with that. And I think Malone also, if I'm not mistaken, got a contract extension last October, So I don't know what that means. Uh, Historically, like that's kind of been, uh, you know, one of the cheaper front offices. And so I think if he's delivering a playoff team, uh, I think that they would probably go forward with him, you know, basically no matter what, but I don't know. We'll see.
1: We shall see. Um, And at the end here, Ben, two quick podium questions. One from Christopher settling a long debate um, or weighing in on a long debate. It'll, it'll never be settled properly. But he says, Dear Open Floor, I've always sided with Andrew on the nonsense of Ben's phrase, he plays with purpose but not a purpose, as a description for Russell Westbrook. If Kyrie Irving said that, Zach Lowe would say it's gobbledygook. And Ben, I wonder how that makes you feel, because I I really agree with what Christopher is saying there. Kyrie Irving definitely sees the wisdom of he plays with purpose but not a purpose and I think that most that might be the most damning indictment yet of that sort of aphorism or aphorism however you're supposed to say that word
2: I don't know I mean sometimes big ideas aren't for small minds I think that could be a part of the problem here (laughs) Uh, you look at Christopher's alternative solution what did he recommend that I say he plays with passion but not a purpose I mean that's so much worse and so much less catchy than my saying. I think you guys need to leave the sayings to me. I mean, I think if you're trying to construct a glossary of terms and and slogans from our podcast, I mean, don't you think that that would be sort of my genre, Andrew? I'm not trying to toot my own horn here too much, but come on, like, just leave this to the pros. I know what I'm doing. Now, I'm glad you brought up Kyrie because I do need to uh, weigh in here a little bit on Kyrie. We got some very very angry emails from people after my comments on uh you know last the last episode where i basically said look you know we have to judge kyrie based on uh, his most recent playoff performance as well we can't just you know give him carte blanche as this amazing playoff performer and some people weighed in very very angry about that saying we're disrespecting kyrie and all of that i want to just use an extended analogy here andrew when you're breaking down players a lot of times on this podcast, I view myself as like a highway patrol officer, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm kind of clocking you. I'm seeing how you're driving. I'm, I'm looking for, uh, you know, suspicious movements or things like that. But as long as you don't stray too far outside the bounds of, you know, law, lawful society, I will okay. let you go. And, and, and I don't push back too hard on your takes. But with Kyrie – you were doing the equivalent of just like forgetting that speed limits existed. And you were just flying through town at like 85 miles an hour, just blowing past school zone signs, trying to tell me uh, this old story about how he's just this incredible postseason performer who's always there and he has the skill set that matters the most in the biggest moments. And I understand why. Uh, you know, you you, you continue to say things like that because you blocked out the last three months of Kyrie Irving's existence because it got really dark and painful and traumatic for you as a Celtics fan. And so as the highway patrol officer in that scenario, I had to basically just say, look, like, Andrew, I understand you were not intentionally driving recklessly through the school zone, but your action was, you know, essentially against the law and also putting lots of other people at risk. So I had to go ahead and... (laughs) pull you over and write you a ticket. And while I was writing you that ticket, I had to sort of weigh my options, right? Like I could just give you a little bit of slap on the wrist and let you move forward. Or I could try to make an example out of you in that scenario. And I felt like because your statements about Kyrie, how he plays in the playoffs are actually held by lots of different people because he had such spectacular moments, um, you know, Mm -hmm. in that 2016 finals that I just think that sometimes there needs to be more nuance and context to that conversation. So I made a big statement out of you. I came back uh, a little bit emotionally. Uh, I'll say, you know, maybe I was, uh, you know, know, going too far as an officer of the law. But I really tried to, like, you know, give you a a a ticket that would stick and would make you think. And I think, unfortunately, uh, in that conversation— I wound up going a little bit too far, a little bit too simplistic in how I was trying to portray, you know, Kyrie as this playoff player. I mean, obviously, he's not a bum. He's not, you know, some guy who I would just completely, you know, disregard in the playoffs. He's got some real valuable skills um, that will help his teams kind of going forward. Uh, but what yeah. I uh, this all brings me back to one of my favorite statements, by the way, which is never judge players on their best day or their worst day. And I think that the Kyrie fans we heard from and you. Uh, on last week's episode, we were guilty of judging him on his best day, whereas I was definitely guilty of presenting him and judging him based only on his worst day. I think the truth is in the middle, but as a playoff player, I think Kyrie's fans need to recognize that there's been multiple times where injuries have either kept him out um, or shortened his run. I think that a lot of his postseason success has come against Eastern Conference teams that frankly, you know, weren't that impressive. I think that he benefited more than any other player uh, so far in NBA history from playing with LeBron James because uh, he was allowed to do what he does best and really didn't have to worry too much about everything else. Uh, And I also think that as spectacular as his uh, best moments were, they've also uh, been counterbalanced by some moments uh, where there were some real serious questions about uh, what a team will look like with Kyrie as their main guy. So look, I'm writing a ticket on myself here a little bit. I'm trying to take a little bit of accountability for last week's argument about Kyrie. I'm trying mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, maybe throw a little bit of an olive branch to the Kyrie defenders. But guys, you have to come back to reality as well. You have to meet people in the middle because I think that Kyrie's defenders are getting to this point where they start to sound like the Kobe stands. And we don't want that, Andrew. We want to be able to have, you know, good conversations here and, and, and reach out to people. And I'm worried that maybe we've lost some of those minds and maybe they're not coming back.
1: Well, okay. I have a number of responses to that little monologue there. Number one, I'm glad that you finally dropped any pretense and embraced your role as the narc of this podcast. But, um, beyond that, I do think that, I don't think you're giving me enough credit. You're arguing that I was driving recklessly through the school zone, claiming that Kyrie is going to be a great playoff player going forward. I've been pretty clear that I'm skeptical of where Kyrie's career is going to be headed. Um... Well, look, you just went, no, but
2: on that specific episode, you just went back to your favorite trope about his playoff success. And that's what set me off. And then, you know, to your credit, when I pulled you over, you're like, oh yeah, wait a minute. Sorry. I gave up on Kyrie, you know, six weeks ago. I hate this guy. (laughs) And so that was the equivalent of being like, officer, I'm so sorry. I wasn't even like looking at how fast I was going. I was just in my own zone. I was listening to a podcast about economics and my brain was somewhere else. And, you know, I I understand that. I understood where you were coming from. But I still had to write the ticket.
1: Okay. All right. You got to do what you got to do. And on that one, well, actually, another thing I wanted to respond to after last week's podcast, you openly cackled at me when I said the Celtics could potentially make the playoffs in the Western Conference. That is not nearly as ridiculous a claim as you imply. Because when you look at the West, there are seven teams that are probably locks for the playoffs that eighth spot is going to be up for grabs. In terms, like, are you positive that the Celtics are not going to have a better season than the San Antonio Spurs next year?
2: Wasn't I saying that the Sixers and the Bucs would also be in the in the Western Conference playoffs? So that now we're knocking down all of these other teams. I thought that was oh
1: uh, yeah, discussion. well yeah, that that is fair. If you're arguing that there's only eight teams making the playoffs league wide, the Celtics would definitely be screwed. But I was just saying, if you're throwing one of these teams into the West, the Sixers and Bucks could definitely float out there. And then the Celtics would potentially float. They're not inevitably drowning if you throw them out West. And maybe even like the Raptors or the Nets, like the, one of those teams could have a surprising year next season. But um, in either way, not as hopeless as I felt like you were implying. As far as the well, Kyrie Point look. look
2: they could make the western conference playoffs when they trade for Bradley Beal i could see that
1: yep yeah, look that's on the table too another another Beal dark horse that i've thought about and look jalen brown it is plus impossible that pick. it
2: is it is impossible to pierce your heart anymore. I mean, you are just like you I can't even <laughs> I can't even say something that hurts you on the Bradley Beal front or like, you know, provokes a reaction. You're just like, Yeah, it's possible. They're gonna go to this team that I've envied for five years. They're gonna take my best player and I'm gonna have nothing to show for it. And you're just cool with it, man. This is a new level of darkness.
1: I have gamed out every conceivable Beal scenario on the board. And let me tell you, Ben, <laughs> you you will never be able to hurt me after the Wizards traded Otto Porter for a 2023 second round pick. I That was the end. Now, my heart is dead after that one. It's just a, a black hole of emptiness um, as far as the Wizards are concerned. But as far as Kyrie is concerned, I'm with you. Almost all the way. I don't think that we can act like... I see a lot of people downplay Kyrie's achievements and say, oh, it's just about that shot. Like, great, you you hit one shot and then suddenly you're Teflon for the rest of your career. First of all, that is how the NBA Finals should work. The reason those games are interesting is because they do mean a lot more than like most of the regular season. And so Kyrie coming through in those moments is a big deal, and, you know, I mean, it's for me, I don't even think about this shot when I talk about what he can do in the playoffs. He took over that series and was a huge reason the Cavs won. He outplayed slow Steph down, Curry in the same year that Steph was the best offensive player the league had ever seen. And to act well, like none of that matters, is I, I, that's a bridge too far for me. I understand context matters. He had a great teammate in LeBron. LeBron doesn't win in 2016 without Kyrie. So that logic well, goes both ways.
2: Yeah, I mean it does go both ways though cuz LeBron was the better player in game 5, 6 and 7 than Kyrie Irving. And so that's that's kind of okay. where I I think some people will elevate Kyrie and say he took over the series, he outplayed Steph and it's like, well, his responsibilities were not Steph's responsibilities. I mean, I think that LeBron was carrying heavy, heavy burden both side and they also had a significant psychological advantage uh, that they clearly maximized perfectly uh, in that particular series look it was incredible it was probably the best series um, that I've covered in terms of the twists and terms the drama uh, the unpredictability of it uh, no mm-hmm. question about it but when we're trying to judge a player over the course of like his entire career that's where I got upset about the Kevin Durant thing because it's like all right uh we give Kyrie full credit and and possibly too much credit for that one series right but what about all the rest of it I think that's that's where we need to uh you know start investigating whereas a player like Kevin Durant it's just been year after year after year after year after year for uh you know 10 straight years
1: yes and that is a fair point when you look at the full body of work with Kyrie There are plenty of red flags along the way. And that was true even when the Celtics traded for him. So, uh, And going forward, after the Celtics tenure, there are even more red flags. And I think you and I are aligned on that front. We just disagree a little bit in the way the 2016 finals are interpreted. But uh, I hear your point, Officer Gulliver.
2: I'm I'm with it. I'm not even totally sure we disagree, though. I mean, I think maybe you you put a little more value on that the big shot, but if you agree that LeBron was their most important player, then we're basically on the same page.
1: Yeah, I agree that LeBron was their most important player. I don't actually put as much value on the shot. I just think as when you look at the second half of of those finals, like Kyrie was consistently playing at a really, really high level, and you can talk to actual Warriors players, and they have a ton of respect for Kyrie as well. And that's where it's like, okay, I understand this guy hasn't been perfect, but clearly people who play the game believe in his skill set and what it can do at a high level. And if you're comparing right. Kemba and Kyrie, like, you can make the argument just based on regular seasons, like Kemba is definitely the better player. You can do the same thing with, with Lillard. But you, I, I feel like it's unfair to act as though that high-end uh, environment is irrelevant as far as Kyrie is concerned. And, and like that skill set doesn't matter because I think we, like we've seen him come through and outplay Steph.
2: I think that's a point well taken. I would counter that the same players who are going to be speaking so highly of Kyrie in that situation are the same people who are going to let Kyrie completely off the hook for what happened against Milwaukee. And that's that's inaccurate, right? Because the people are saying, oh, it's not his fault. It was a poisoned environment. Oh, he didn't, you know, it was his teammates weren't ready for the moment. The young guys, you know, didn't have chemistry. They didn't know their roles. I mean, there's the people who are going to be, you know, explaining away Kyrie's rough moments and not holding him accountable for some just dreadful decisions, game after game, horrible leadership, all the things that we probably like, you know, ran into the ground at this point. And so I don't think we should be giving too much credence to those voices because, you know, they're not going to be, they're not balanced. You know, the, the people like the pure Kyrie stands are not seeing um, the weaknesses or they're willing to excuse them or write them off, um, uh, you know, as you know, being caused by some other external factors rather than by Kyrie himself.
1: Okay, well, um, good talk. I, I feel like this sort of fills out our petty Kyrie argument at the end of last last week's podcast. And uh, again, we mostly agree But um, finishing it off, again, a callback to last week's pod. Colin says, hey, guys, just listened to the latest podcast. And I wanted to say that I, too, am a neuroscientist who listens to open floor while recording brain activity. In my case, the brain activity of sea slugs. And I'm performing my research at the University of Illinois. So go Myers Leonard, I guess. Uh, What do you think, Ben?
2: Well, I think it's phenomenal that we're hearing from neuroscientists, very intelligent people. They obviously have a lot of time to burn. We can kind of tell that from these emails. So, uh, you know, I'm glad they're sticking with us through those moments. What I would like to propose, though, is a neuroscientist competition because clearly we have a large audience. What I want to see is, you know, I'm not so concerned about the karma or what you're doing, you know, during your experiments, I am more interested in the open floor's influence upon animals. So I would like to do a test where maybe batch A of the rats or the sea slugs or whatever are listening, pumped in, you know, sound day after day after day to like Andrew and I arguing over the top 100, like one of our more nasty episodes where we really get, you know, know, we, we go at each other back and forth. And then yep. I think the other, you know, group B would the animals would be able to listen to say one of our happy-go-lucky field trip podcasts, like going to, you know, North <laughs> Carolina and, and, you know, when we're just like goofy and having a good time. And I want to see, is there any demonstrable impact on the behavior, the brainwaves of these two test groups based on the nature of our conversations and what that might say? Because look, if it comes back and says- you're turning these rats into idiots when you yell at each other. I would like to know that so that we can maybe be a little bit more friendly. What do you think?
1: Okay, so I like it. Um, And whether it's Yuri or Colin or some other neuroscientist out there, please hook us up and use some research funding to conduct this experiment. The one... uh, The one amendment I would suggest, though, would be rather than choosing different open floor episodes, just pump in strictly takes from me, some of my meandering takes on the Wizards, whatever. You can go back and pick your favorites with one group of sea slugs and then take another group of sea slugs and force them to listen to Golliver talk about accountability for two or three hours and see... Which sea slug performs better? I think that would be what I would be rooting for uh, uh, going forward. I can,
2: I can promise you this. My sea slugs would perform better. They might not be happier, but they would perform better. There's no doubt. They'd be racing up and down. They'd be doing the little hamster uh, you know, wheels. They'd be doing that thing, no problem. It'd be Olympic quality sea slugs if they were listening to my coaching. Andrew, I can promise that.
1: Yes. Okay. That's fair enough. I believe in you and your sea slugs and you're doing nothing on this podcast, if not motivating all of us to be better and to strive for greatness. Uh, And so on that note, Ben, I think we should wrap it up and uh, reconvene Thursday. In the meantime, listeners out there, just go enjoy America's bounty. That's the only thing anyone needs to take from this episode.
2: That's true, Andrew. Um, and I'd also like to know, if you're working with any animals in various labs, see if they can understand what playing with purpose versus a purpose means so that we can straighten out guys like Andrew and these other <laughs> emailers who com- <laughs> continue to dog me out on the you know this incredible uh, piece of wisdom that I spent years concocting. Andrew, our listeners can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com. OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. We want to hear about your summer adventures. We want to hear about your thoughts about America. We want to hear your thoughts on the Wizards executives. We want to hear your thoughts on the Milwaukee Bucks uh, and anything else that you're preoccupied with here during the slow months of the summer. Remember guys, your emails help carry us through uh, the offseason until we can get back to training camp and all that good stuff. Again, openfloormail at gmail.com. Also, they can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for uh, Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. Kyrie fans, now that we made amends, go hook us up with a very kind and positive review, and it'll be all good. Andrew, I'm on Instagram at ben.golver. I had my 81-point game yesterday going through all these canyons in Navajo Nation. People should check that out. But, Andrew, good news. I'm heading back to society uh, for the L.A. Clippers press conference later this week, the biggest day in their entire history. We can convene after that to talk about Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and all that good stuff. Until then, Andrew, I will talk to you. All right,
1: man. Can't wait. Talk to you soon.